Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of JTV. I'm extremely excited to be doing what is really a very long overdue interview uh, with uh, someone who is no uh, stranger to JTV, Rudy Rochman, um, who's actually featured on plenty of content on JTV. He's been at APAC where we collaborated with him and he spoke to, we didn't send him inside APAC, he was outside uh, the building speaking to the people who uh, uh, were our opponents to Zionism and Israel. Um, and that really is uh, one of uh, Rudy's many um, strong, strong uh, abilities, which is to communicate and talk to people who don't think uh, the same as, as him and, and myself. Um, and it's long overdue because there's, I'd actually like to just have a slightly more uh, calm conversation uh, with him rather than always see him talking to someone uh, who opposes him. Although, to be honest, Rudy handles himself so calmly and, and, and in such a collected way that I, I doubt there's going to be too much difference in terms of tone. But I really want to take this opportunity to talk about a bunch of different things um, that Rudy has so much, so uh, just a lot of insight um, and perspective and, and, and um, case, uh, like strong cases to be made on so many important subjects that a lot of uh, Jewish people and Zionists really care about. So first of all, Rudy, thank you so much for making the time to speak to us from Israel. Thank you, Ali, for having me. It's a pleasure to always work with you with all the JTV collaborations we've made, and hopefully we'll have more to come. And also, it's great to, to be on here as your personal friend. 100%. Let's jump into some uh, Israel-related content now, which is... Um, you know, actually, before we even dive in, I feel like I, I'd just like to spend a minute just because I've heard your story, but I want to know just briefly if you could outline what, what your background is, what your story is, and why you've come to be so passionate about Zionism. Sure. Uh, so I was born in France. Both my parents were first generation born in France as well. My mother's side had to flee from Morocco in 1948. There was a massacre of the Jewish village in Ujda. Uh, so they fled to France. On my father's side, they survived the Holocaust by fleeing from Poland to France and hidden in the attics of the war. So both of my parents were first generation born there. At the age of three, my family decided to move to Israel. Then at the age of five, my family decided to move to Miami. So I grew up really hopping around all over the world. I've lived in Miami, New York, uh, LA, Palo Alto, France, Israel. My family also spent a year and a half in Singapore. Um, and because I moved to so many places very quickly, I started to develop uh, questions of who really am I and where am I really from? Because whenever you go to a new place, you have to introduce yourself, you have to uh, say where you're from, and apparently wherever I was being asked, I was supposed to give a different answer. So in Miami, I was labeled the French kid, and in France, I was the American cousin, and I'm also Ashkenaz and Sephardad, and I'm like, Moroccan and Polish and all these different identities all mixed together and I'm always supposed to give a different answer depending on who's asking me that question or where that question is being asked and already I had a frustration very early on with having to give some answer based on someone else and not the answer that I connected to um, and things started to change for me around the age of seven I actually took a trip to London with my mom and my younger brother and we were kicked off of a bus for being Jewish and that's the moment that everything changed for me because I realized it didn't matter where I was born, grew up, lived in, traveled to, resided in. I was a Jew. And by being a Jew, it meant I was part of a nation, a Jewish nation, Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, the Hebrews, this same people that we all refer to because technically I'm not from the tribe of Judah. I'm from the tribe of Levi from both sides of my family. So why am I same. Jew? Well, because Jew is the synonym for the nation that I belong to. Mm -hmm. And so I started to see myself as being a Jew as part of the nation of Israel. Uh, came, joined the army in Israel when I was 17, uh, then went to the U.S. Uh, to do university. I was at UCLA and Santa Monica College for a bit, and then transferred to Columbia University. Started my activism there, created a grassroots students movement uh, to be able to stand up for, for Israel and not to be something that's left-wing or right-wing, which eventually grow into something that's around, you know, 50-something campuses today. And my work continues along this path to empower the next generation of Jews and allies to be ideologically and intellectually strong, uh, to give them the tools to do so, and also to create uh, something in Israel that allows the ideological tribes that we've become to come together. So bridging the gaps between the right and the left, the religious and the secular, or even Israelis and Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a large part of my work as well, what I do in Israel. That's a really unique story. And I think it's quite 
remarkable even to hear of you actually being kicked off a bus. Was it who, who was it that did it that kicked you off it because you were Jewish? Like it's 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 quite rare to hear that level of overt anti-Semitism, you know, in, in France. Well, this actually happened in London. And I don't oh, sorry, it's London. rare at all for it to happen in London or in France either. I mean, just recently there was a Jew that was stabbed less than a week ago uh, in, in England. So this is something that happens quite often where Jews are being targeted. And oftentimes they go unreported. Uh, most of the times they're not uh, recorded in the media, so they don't go mainstream. People don't hear about it, and it only circulates within the Jewish community. Uh, so basically what happened is my mom had a shirt that had Hebrew writing that she got from Sfat, which is a city in the north of Israel. And when we got onto the bus, the bus driver noticed that my mom had the shirt on, asked her if it was written in Jewish, and she said, no, it's written in Hebrew, but that's the language of the Jewish people. That's what you're asking, because, you know, maybe some people are ignorant and don't know that uh, Hebrew is our language and not Jewish is our language. And he proceeded by saying, oh, you guys are Jews? And my mom said, yes. He's like, get off the bus. I don't want any Jews on my bus. My mom refused. Then he got up, took my mom and threw her off. And what, and that Rudy, what, really, what year was really this? Shocked me. What year was this? I was uh, seven years old, so around 2000. Wow, wow. That must have been really formative for you. I mean, I think part of why I said that is also because I feel like you're right. I think the situation has actually deteriorated. So I was maybe, maybe my sense was it used to be maybe a little bit better. It used to be a little bit less overt. Now it's starting to become more overt in some parts of Europe. I still feel, to be honest, um, like I would be extremely, you know, I could I could see it happening in London, but I still feel very you know, comfortable, safe, uh, identifying as, as, as a Jew publicly, wearing a kippah in London. Although having said that, the one time when I really felt nervous, and this, to be honest, is the only time I've really felt nervous wearing a kippah, was in 2018, where, 2014, sorry, where they, the IDF conducted Operation, I think it was Protective Edge in 2014, and there was like a week of protests and actually a bit of like, rioting in London and you had all kinds of anti-Semitic imagery and, and, and but that was my sense always like it's a bit more like covert than overt uh, you know gra graffiti on walls not sort of direct but but I th when the, the protests sort of happened and there was so much vitriol towards um, Israel and let's be honest Jews um, yeah that was the first time where I really kind of felt I, I could be putting myself in danger but it's kind of like been gone gone away a little bit now but I know it could come back um, and I know it's there, you know? Yeah, I mean, what usually starts as something ideologic eventually becomes something physical. You know, it might be covert for a few years, but as it starts growing in the mainstream and influencing the minds of the future intellectual and political class of a generation, eventually things will become physical. And I don't think it's gone underground. I think, uh, you know, if you go to most college campuses, especially also in England and in London, uh, the college campuses constantly... The only minority group that is under attack for their legitimacy and identity is the Jewish group. Right. And we're constantly right. being associated to all the evils this world has ever seen, uh, which is the common thread in anti-Semitism and the, in the formula that exists of finding an evil and blaming that on the Jewish people. And it's happening and attacks are happening. You know, there were shootouts in synagogues in, in, in the U.S. There were, you know, if you go to places in France or in South America, you have to have the military of those countries outside. Yeah, but, but Rudy, uh, like the Jewish community centers, the grocery shops. But even on even on campuses, I can't see them like, you know, the campuses. It tends to be on in those synagogue shootings you talk about tend to be more far right kind of incidents or alt right. Whereas campuses, it tends to be more far left, where they at least try to keep the veneer that this is not about Jews. So that's why I'm saying, overt, get off the bus because you're a Jew. I, you know. I guess that wasn't happening on a campus, so I guess like it makes more sense, but it still is, to me, a bit like, wow. Yeah, I mean, anti-Semitism exists from the far right to the far left, to the far right where the evil communists and to the far left where the evil capitalists. So, yeah. uh, you know, in all extremes, and unfortunately populations are going to their extremes. There's no more central basis there's no more you know speaking to someone that is either from the right to the left or to the left to the right and finding common ground the other side becomes the enemy today yeah so so i i i want to i actually want to talk about like the what the key arguments to make in terms of israel but actually i feel like we have to start with something else which is 
following on from this about anti-Semitism, which is, and the question of how and how it sort of can morph and ch chop and change between that and anti-Zionism. And I know um, you and I both believe that they are very much uh, part of the same package. Um, but my question is, you get throughout the Western world, to be honest, a lot of people who would call themselves moderates. They typically tend to sort of be Typically, they'll call themselves like, you know, in the centre, maybe centre-left, maybe even sometimes centre-right. And they will always sort of pay lip service to the fact that they support Israel um, and that they, you know, want a two-state solution, as they call it, and they believe in all that kind of stuff. But I've always found that some of these people, it always seems to me like whenever the chips are down and Israel is in need of support or, you know, saying that they have the right to self-defence, all that kind of stuff, some of these people, they that they're nowhere to be seen, or they're just condemning Israel. And I suppose what I'm asking is, do you think that the, when, you, when you see real vitriol towards Israel, especially from these kind of self-described moderates, I know it's much more likely to be anti-Semitic when it's people on the far left or the far right, but these self-described moderates and politicians who behave in this kind of way, do you think they also it's, 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 you would describe it as some kind of conscious or unconscious anti-Semitism that's, that's, that's really going on? Well, first of all, you mentioned two-state solution. I'm completely against any form of the two-state solution because it does not allow either population right. to- and We'll get onto that. aspirations or to, or to end the injustice they experience. Um, but for the politicians that are, you know, center-right or center-left, first of all, we have to understand that politicians have interests. You know, their interest is to get reelected. Their interest is to say things in order to get support, in order to not to be hated by the public, uh, for the most part. Um, so, if someone says something, well, I support Israel, but it's sort of like, okay, well, I don't want to seem anti-Semitic by saying that every nation has a right to self-determination except the Jewish people. But I will use my time and my breath and my energy and my actions to put Israel down and condemn Israel in order to be liked by a, a growing movement among the youth, which is very popular to be against Israel. So, you know, it's just a, a position that they take that's functional to achieving their agenda and to, you know, gaining popularity. But I don't, I don't necessarily blame them because at the end of the day, the vast majority of information coming out on what is Zionism, on Israel, on all these things, even Jewish rights, it's coming from those who are anti-Jewish, anti-Israel. So if we ourselves were the ones controlling that conversation, narrating our story and being able to communicate to the world, then maybe they'd have different conclusions. Whereas they see something on their social media, on the news, in the newspaper, in their professors, in the workplace, you know, all their friends, their families saying the same negative things about Israel. What do we expect them to have a different conclusion? No, we have to be able to reclaim the narrative and be able to speak in a language that, that communicates our message to the generation that is currently in power and also the next generation that will one day be in power. Okay, well, fine. So let's, let's, so you're saying it's more just, just political expediency, generally speaking, because that's what a lot of politicians are these days um, and how, how they operate. Um, so let's just then switch to this question of what, what do you think are the most important messages um, that Zionists need to be getting out about Israel's story that you think is missing? Yeah, so first of all, we always need to define the terms. Often I, then I debate with individuals who uh, claim to be anti-Zionist. And whenever I get in a debate, instead of just hearing anti-Zionist as they're anti-me, I ask them to define what they mean by Zionism. Mm -hmm. And then they say all these horrible things that I'm also against. And I was like, well, if that's what Zionism means, I'd also be against it. However, the definition of Zionism is the right for the Jewish people to self-determine on their ancestral homeland. That's the definition, and that is what everyone who is a Zionist identifies with. Meaning, you can be a, a secular Zionist, a religious Zionist, right Zionist, left Zionist, you know, social Zionist. There's all different strands and streams of being a Zionist, but it has nothing to do with the core concept of the right for the Jewish people to self-determine. So it's very important to define the terms from the get-go so that you can communicate to the person that you're speaking to, whether an individual or the masses, for them to understand actually what you're saying and not to get caught up in the term that you both are saying different things. Uh, and then it's important to be able to narrate our story with a language that people can understand and have you know more depth in. What I mean by that is you know we both grew up in a very uh, 
pro-Israel, Zionist, you know, very strong Jewish families and backgrounds, communities, schools. And we were always taught, especially in the diaspora, these great things that Israel does. Like, it's a democracy, it created the cherry tomatoes, it created ways, startup nation, it survived all these horrible things. And even across all these different enemies attacking Israel, it still came out on top. And none of those answers actually answers the question that is being asked today in the intellectual spaces. And the question is, who are the Jewish people and why do they have a right to exist in Israel? And none of those are the answer. The fact that we're a democracy, first of all, I don't expect anything less from the Jewish people than to have a democracy. If anything, I expect us to create something better than a democracy, something more in a way representative towards the population that has more equality, that works better. If anything, I'd expect the Jewish people to do that. However, let's look at countries like Jordan and Singapore and China and Thailand that are all not the, not the democracies, right? Some of those are monarchies, some of those are, are kind of semi-dictatorships, and no one is questioning their right to exist. So we have to stop using answers that don't answer our question and actually just make ourselves feel good of our country. The question is, why do you have a right to exist, not why do you like Israel? And I think the answer to why does Israel have a right to exist in the language that the younger generation, which is, which is a generation that cares more about depth than superficial answers, is the story of Israel is the story of a 4,000-year-old native population that came from the land of Judea that were forcibly displaced from the land of a Western white imperial nation called the Romans. Even during their displacement, they maintained a constant presence in their land where there was never a moment in history without the Jewish people in their land. And during the 2,000 years where we were displaced, we went through persecution, exterminations, and oppressions. And after 2,000 years, we created the most successful indigenous liberation movement that ever existed, where it's the first time in history where a native population were able to revive their civilization, kick off the colonial force, revive their language as well, and declare liberation. And that's a story that when you tell it in that way, people will be like, okay, now I get why you have a right to Israel, why it's a story that's filled with justice, because it's the Native Americans succeeding, because it's the Tibetans succeeding, because it's the Aboriginals and the Yazidis and the Kurds and the Coptics and the Maoris and all these Native populations that the world claims to support, especially the left. The, it's the empowerment model of their future success was done by the Jewish people liberating their land from the British, not from the Arabs. What happened after is ethnic conflict between Arabs and Jews. What Israel did in 1948 was liberate their land from the British occupation. And when we're able to tell Israel in that language, and not just like us because we're a startup nation and we have some cool technology, then you get to the depth and you get to be able to speak in a language that someone can relate to and want to support. Like supporting Israel now is something just, not just, oh, you have nice things, so you want me to like you? That's not enough for me, you know? Right. But the big elephant in the room that they would probably, you know, come back with is, well, okay, you know, even if let's say they hear that, um, and by the way, we'll talk about people in a sec who don't uh, accept your narrative because they see Jews as white or Europeans, which I think is such a deeply sinister kind of uh, representation of Jews, but we can talk about in a sec that in a sec. The obvious thing uh, that's, that's missing that they would come back with is they'd talk about the Arab-Palestinians who have been displaced. And they might, e let's say they even accept that you say Jews are, you know, really the, the you know, have a greater claim or they're indigenous. They'll say, we don't like what's happened, that there's been so many displaced and we want some kind of, you know, self-determination for the, the Arabs that were living there. Maybe you'll have to also talk about the fact that they see Jews as white as Europe and European in, in this discussion, because I think that's a big part of why they'll always not fully embrace your narrative because they for as long as they see the jews as even if you they might accept the whole indigenous thing for as long as they see the jews as in some way more the oppressor the european the white or whatever which is part of their sort of i don't know sort of neo-marxist worldview um then it's you can't i feel like you can't really make any progress with them yeah, so this is again where I'd probably have to refer to the definitions of terms. For someone to be considered indigenous according to the United Nations uh, doctrine on indigenous rights, uh, one, you can't be the descendant of a colonial nation or an invading conquering force. So, for example, the white South Africans can never be indigenous to South Africa. They should be able to live there because we're all human beings, have equal rights there, but they're not indigenous to South Africa. Neither are the white Americans in America. They can have a civilization, they can have equal rights, but they're not indigenous. They're not the First Nations. So, one, you cannot be the descendant of an invader conquering nation. Number two, your way of life and identity has to be fundamentally rooted to a specific piece of land. 
So for those who've seen the movie Avatar, for example, imagine that relationship of a land to uh, a population, to a species, to a group of, 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 of beings to their land, that's the relationship indigenous peoples have to a land. Number three, you maintain a constant presence in that land uh, since the establishment of your civilization, their native civilization. And number four, there's a collective governing body that has voted to self-identify the collective as indigenous. And we have the World Zionist Congress, which represents all Jews around the world. And in the previous World Zionist Congress, we had voted for us to collectively now self-identify as indigenous. So it's not a, a question or an opinion if Jews are indigenous. We look at the history of, of the land and our connection uh, to the land. The land is, is in archaeology says the truth. But when we're talking about uh, Ashkenazi Jews, for example, first of all, it's important to understand that there's not only Ashkenazi Jews out there in the world, right? 50% of Israel is not Ashkenazi. There are Jews that have been displaced in Northeast India, in Yemen, in Morocco, in Iraq, in Libya, uh, you know, in, in Ethiopia. There are Jews still living in Uganda and Nigeria today. So Jews are a plethora of different colors, but all stem from one civilization, from Israel slash Judea. And the Ashkenazi Jews are the particular group of Jews that were displaced into Europe. And a lot of people are trying to say that they're white. Now, it's important to understand, first of all, genetically, culturally, and historically, this population of Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, descend from the Levant. Uh, their DNA is more closely related to Arabs in Arabia than they are to uh, white Europeans. Their historical records, even the, the, the language of Yiddish, right? Yiddish is spoken uh, by Ashkenazi Jews all throughout Europe. But Yiddish is predominantly German and Hebrew. Now, Yiddish in Russia is German, Hebrew, and Russian. And so we can even see through the language how populations have moved through the linguistic history. So Jews moved to a region where German, German was being spoken, and they fused that with their native language, Hebrew, creating Yiddish. And as they moved eastward, they added on words that now existed or that didn't previously exist uh, to the language. So even through the linguistic history of Yiddish, we can trace how those populations move and further on there's many historical records of when the Jews came in and in what years and how many and, and how they've stayed and where they've lived. So historically, culturally and genetically, Jews descend from the Levant, even if you do DNA tests uh, where you know you have 23andMe and Ancestry DNA and all these different DNA tests and it'll say uh, Ashkenazi Jews are Eastern European. But if you click on that, it's saying Eastern European by this is where they're currently located. And the description actually says that their DNA is Levantine DNA and not European DNA. So that's talking about, you know, actually our genetics and where we originate from. When it comes to the society considering us white, uh, white is not only about pigmentation. Because there are people in Asia that have much lighter skin pigmentation than many Europeans, and they are not considered white. So white is more than just the skin that you have. Uh, which, to be honest, is a genetic feature, and we should never divide populations based on how we look. You know, I have two brothers with blonde uh, hair and blue eyes, and a brother that looks like me. What are we, two different races? So this concept of uh, being racist based on what we look like for me is evil. But when someone is talking about white, they're talking about two things. They're talking about origins, and they're talking about status. Meaning their origins are from Europe, and their status is they're treated equally without any suffering within this white European society. And when it comes to Jews, like we said, they are not culturally, historically, or genetically originates from Europe. So that already throws everything out the, the window. And number two, in terms of status, I mean, Jews are constantly targeted even today. Six million of us were killed for not being white. What about the, the pogroms and the Spanish Inquisition and blaming the death of Jesus on the Jews and, uh, and the black plagues and not having equal rights and not being able to participate in agrarianism and, you know, the, the Dreyfus trials. And I mean, there's countless and countless and countless of examples of how Jews are not white in white societies. Now, that doesn't mean there's something inherently wrong with being white. You're good or bad based on your actions and your values, not what you look like. But let's be real that the Jewish people historically, even though they've had some chapters where they had some equality, but still a lot of anti-Semitism in those chapters, we were never treated as white within white societies. So when we're talking about Jewish self-determination, it's a liberation of this population back into their land. And there's a lot of people that try to mix in things without context. So 
let's talk about displacements and deaths uh, of Jews and Arabs during the wars that we fought. Uh, those are displacements and deaths that happened on both sides. So to care only about one side suffering or one side being displaced or one side uh, having casualties and not the other, well, clearly there's a moral issue there because you should be against the suffering of any human being and against the injustice committed against any human population. Um, so to care only about the suffering that is happening to the Palestinian side is already wrong. On top of that, there are thousands dying right now in Syria of Palestinians. There are Palestinians by the hundreds of thousands in refugee camps in Lebanon, Palestinians without equal rights in Jordan, which make up 80% of the population in Jordan. There are Palestinians suffering the border of Gaza and Egypt, and no one is talking about those Palestinians. So it seems to me that people care only about using the suffering of Palestinian suffering only when it can be used out of context and only used when it can be attacked uh, against Israel. Of course. So that's number one when it comes to suffering, but all that suffering which is unjust and should have never happened, happened in the context of what? Happened in the context of a war. So we need to understand that if there was no war, if in 1948 the surrounding Arab countries did not attack Israel, there would have been no displacements or deaths on either side. If in 1967 the surrounding Arab countries did not attack Israel, there would have been no displacements or deaths on either side. If in 1973 there would have been no attacks against Israel, there would have been no displacements or deaths on either side. So it's very easy to take the consequences of an outcome that was caused by another nation a few nations, well, not the entire population, but the leadership at least, that waged to ethnically cleanse the Jewish population and to blame those consequences on the side that was attacked is completely manipulating the situation and not caring about finding resolution. Now, in terms of talking about, okay, well, I guess maybe the Jews are the indigenous population, but there are also Arabs that have been living there uh, and they also have a right to land. Well, we have a right, we all have rights to lands because they've been living here, so they own homes and they should have a right to live here equally. So let me give you an example. If one day, uh, Hashem, I'm able to go to Saudi Arabia and I'm able to buy property there, and you know what, I just want a vacation house, and I decide to go and I live there for a little bit, does that make me indigenous to Saudi Arabia? Does, does that give me a claim over Saudi Arabia? Does that make the Jewish people now, for a few people, have a right to take a part of uh, Saudi Arabia and create a country? No, because although I have a right as an equal individual, which anyone should be treated with equality in whatever civilization they live in, that doesn't make me a part of a collective that is indigenous to that land. So the Palestinians, although they have individual and should have individual rights and access and equality in this land, just as any individual, collectively, they are not indigenous to Judea, to Israel. You dig in the land, you don't find their history. They descend from Arabs. That's why they speak um, you know, Arabic. That's why they, they have they practice an Arab religion in Islam, most of them. Uh, that's why they have the same family names as the tribes and other families in Saudi Arabia. That's why they have the same history, uh, you know, dialects. So they're Arabs that have poured into the land during the 2,000 years, well, you know, a little bit less than 1,500 years, because the way Arabs poured into the land was through the spread of Islam, and Islam is only 1,500 years old, and it wasn't during the birth of Islam that Arabs went into the land of Israel. It's only a generation or two later, so we're talking about, you know, 1,400, 1,300 years max, the first time that Arabs even got into the land of Israel. So we need to be able to break down this history and understand that their relationship to the land are individuals living in this land, but collectively, what do we say about indigenous? You cannot descend from an invader nation. The Arabs were an invader nation. Number two, your way of life and culture has to be rooted to a specific piece of land. Their way of life and culture is not rooted here as a collective. Individually, of course, uh, they could have been born there and have an experience there. My grandfather was born there absolutely as an individual. But collectively, your collective is from another land. Uh, we said that you have to... Um, maintain a constant presence well for that to apply you have to have the first two and the third to, to the fourth to self-identify is irregardless because you have to have one two and three in order to do that so if we're talking about the relationship of a population to a land individuals can move into a land but that does not make them indigenous to that land okay so two questions i want to follow up with number one why aren't you applying that same standard to america and basically say Native Americans come into Manhattan and they say, you know, we want this land, let us have it. And number two, what would you, do you believe in any level of Palestinian Arab self-determination? Um, and if it sounds like you're saying not, so if not, what would be your kind of ideal solution? So to answer your first question, the Native American example is very different than the Judean example. First of all, I fully support 
uh, Native American and Native Canadian First Nation uh, land rights and their indigenous aspirations. But when it comes to the Native Americans and Canadians, the First Nations, they do not believe that man owns land. They believe that land owns man. So they do not seek to destroy America or Canada. They do not seek to take down Manhattan and recreate uh, their reservations. They seek to be left alone on the reservation. But if they did, if they did, would you support it? If they did have that as an aspiration, would you support it? I would support finding a resolution in a way that injustice can be undone and that uh, you know the population can still live there and they can have their aspirations. But the reality is, you know, if you want to talk about another example that's better, let's talk about Tibet, right? Tibet is colonized, conquered by China, and the Tibetans seek to return to the land and revive their civilization, and I fully support them in, the, in that plight. So that, I think, is a better example because Tibetans actually believe in a sovereign country, whereas Native Americans don't. Also, Native Americans are several nations. We are one nation. There are several nations. Uh, Native Americans didn't live on the entirety of the U.S., so there are arguments to be made that not all of the U.S. is Native to uh, the Native Americans, only the parts that they were living in. And like I said, their aspiration is very different. And in the example comparison to what happened in Israel, is there was a country and civilization that was built on top of it. Whereas in Israel, it was just a piece of land controlled by a foreign uh, empire, it was never a country, never a state, never a kingdom, never a civilization. It was just a territory. So it's comparing the two, it, it doesn't do either justice. Uh, but if you wanted to get to the bottom uh, of that, I think the comparison is more with, with uh, Tibetans. Uh, to be able to understand. Uh, in terms of self-determination, well, self-determination is tricky because the individual or the group itself in question gets to determine what they want. Uh, self-determination can be good if it's just, and self-determination can be bad if it's unjust. So, you know, a group of people can somehow pop up, uh, you know, in, in London or in America or in Israel or in Africa or in China or you know, in, in, in all sorts of places around the world and say, oh, we collectively decide to self-determine and do X, Y, Z, which is bad. That doesn't mean that we need to support any form and every form of self-determination. What I support uh, being created in Israel is a civilization, one civilization across the entire land where both populations are able to have equal rights, uh, live just and the injustices that we experience and fulfill the aspirations that we all desire. And I don't think that they contradict each other. I don't think that solving the injustice for Palestinians uh, prevents Israelis from solving their injustices and vice versa. And I don't think fulfilling the aspiration for Jews and Israelis prevents Palestinians for, from uh, fulfilling their aspirations and vice versa. So I do believe in a future where there's one land, one civilization. I don't call it one state solution because that's too simplistic. It could be a, a form of federation plan. There are many theories in which how we can come together. But we need to focus on building that reality together. And the analogy to describe uh, the situation, because oftentimes people come to me and say, oh, well, what's your solution? What's your solution? What's your solution? First of all, I'm an individual. I don't, I don't represent the uh, Israeli population, the Jewish population. I'm a Jewish and Israel rights activist, but I'm an individual, and I don't have the answers to all questions. However, the way that we will eventually find a solution is by putting work into it. So the analogy that I often use is if I'm uh, an artist, right? Let's say I'm a painter. Before I create my masterpiece and choose the frame that I want to use over that masterpiece that I created, the first thing I need to do is pick my canvas, the size, the texture. Uh, then I need to paint, pick what type of brushes I want to use, the thin ones, the, the large ones, the thick ones, and then what kind of paint. And then I start coming up with an idea, and then I paint, and then I mess up, and then I fix it. I put the final touches. And then I take a step back when it all is said and done, and I say, well, you know what? This is the frame that works for this masterpiece. Is it a wooden frame? Is it a metallic frame? Is it a thin frame? Is it a thick frame? And you find these final steps you know, the roof on top, once you lay the foundation, once you actually build what you need to do. And to talk about a solution right now is like talking about a frame without even starting to paint. The artists are the Israelis and the Palestinians. And until we start coming together to talk about what kind of reality we can create, working towards building that reality, which will have their, its obstacles. But if we don't work together to build that, we will never get there. So it's useless to talk about solutions. A solution is something that will be achieved, not imposed, and definitely not imposed by people uh, from foreign countries that constantly seek to come in to impose things under the populations here. Right, right. Um, very, very interesting uh, solution. It's something that I haven't really, I mean, we've discussed it uh, briefly before. Um, I find it hard to, because to, to see how that satisfies all parties because the claim at least seems to be from the Arab-Palestinian side, we want, some, some are saying we want the whole land, but then the more moderates are saying, you know, 
we want our they're saying we want our own state and that's our that's how we imagine self-determination so it sounds like you're saying no no that's not what you want or that's not what will give you justice and they would respond by saying well that is what we want <laughs> so uh, to, to answer to that first of all i don't think that the pa or hamas are, are representative at all of their population uh, pa is i think on their 15th year of their four-year term and Hamas is probably on its around 10th year of their, you know, one day, whenever they were elected in 2005 after the dis disengagement of Jews from, from Gaza. Uh, they don't represent the population, so we can't take their position as representative of what the people actually want. I'm part of a movement in Israel called Habayit, uh, which brings local Jewish and Israeli activists and local Palestinian activists together. And what I mean by activists, I mean like people living in refugee camps, people living in uh, Area A uh, and Area B and are, you know, the local leaders of their community. So when you go into a village, a kfal, um, of the Palestinians and you ask the people who is your leader who is your representative they will point to that individual so these are the real leaders of the of the people not just those that are you know in dictator positions uh, of power uh, so when we get those people with Israeli activists and we actually have conversations we're able to break down that the only reason that the majority of Palestinians have been pushing for an idea of a Palestinian state is one it was imposed on them you know, in the partition plan, there was never any sort of aspiration to uh, create a state uh, collectively as a Palestinian. I mean, you have the Grand Mufti uh, saying certain things, but besides him, for the most part, Palestinians were just wanted to live in the society that they were living in. They just wanted equal rights. And so oftentimes when they're talking about a Palestinian state, it's this is a way for us to get what we want. But what they really want is what they really want, which is equal rights, access to movement. Uh, you know, I completely am against a two-state solution. And if Palestinians are against it too, I, I, you know, I'd fight with them against the two-state solution because they should have a right to be able to visit and to travel or to move and to live in Akko and in Yafo. And I should be able to go and move in, in, in Shrem, which is today called Nabla. Do you have, do you have any... To all access this land. Do you have any sense of, for maybe from polling, what percentage of, of Arab Palestinians um just won't accept a jewish state that's what they that's what they don't they're not having because because there is a, you know an argument that a lot of people feel that uh, you know ingrained within arab or perhaps islamic culture is a sense of you know the dar al-islam the the house of islam once a place has been occupied or settled by muslims it's it's blasphemous to uh have it go into uh, non-muslim hands Yes, at the same time, within the Quran, it says a lot of, uh, you know, simultaneously good and bad things about Jews. Funny right. enough, when the Jews are bad, we're called Jews and Yehud. And when we're good in the eyes of the Quran, we're seen as B'nai Israel, which might have some symbolism for us to understand the decolonization process. Uh, however, regardless, the conversation right now in the land is not something religious. Uh, I can't give you statistics. Uh, I'm not going to ever make up any form of statistics but from my personal experience uh, working with these individuals, working with so many leaders of the Palestinian population, have so, having so many dear friends. Uh, they believe that they need to live in a civilization that is Palestinian enough for them, meaning that they have their dignity, they have equal rights of movement, they have equal access to resources, uh, representation, all these things that they require. Uh, so that's what they mean by wanting the state to be Palestinian enough for them. And what we mean when we want the state to be Jewish enough for, for us is to have uh, certain uh, characteristics of a Jewish state and to, uh, you know, speak our, our native language and to, you know, do a lot of things associated to our, to our native culture. But that doesn't prevent them from having their aspirations. So in reality, the, the situation that we need to create is a civilization that is Jewish and Israeli enough for the Jews and the Israelis. Uh, and Palestinian enough and Arab enough for the Palestinians and Arabs. And Let, that is something that can be created. Let's say there was a world in which um, both sides accepted the partition plan of 1947. Are you saying right now you would be pushing against that? Given what you've Absolutely. told me, you would, right. Yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. Um, okay, so... Um, and, and so would Palestinians. Right, right. And do you think that... Um, you know, you have a lot of people in the Hasbara pro-Israel world that will talk a lot about the fact that Israel was voted for by the United Nations and they'll make cases from international law. Do you think it's a good idea to base, uh, you know, the arguments and make a case for Israel on international law? Because international law could change. It could go against uh, Israel. 
That's right, and that's why uh, whenever you know people try to bring up, oh, well, the Balfour Declaration states this and that, that the Jews are you know going to have self-determination on this land. What if the Balfour Declaration said the exact opposite? Right, Would we be right. using it as a source of legitimacy? So right. for me, my legitimacy doesn't come from the United Nations deciding to grant Israel or not grant Israel. Now, if someone wants to talk in the platform of the United Nations and use certain laws to go and debate there, you know, that's a different story. But if you're talking about your legitimacy, it doesn't come from other peoples giving you the right. Uh, the British didn't have a right to be here in the first place. So who are the British to even give away this land? You know, whether they gave it to the right people yeah. or not, it wasn't their rights to give the land in the first place. Yes. Um, the way I see it is, is there are two ways for someone to make the case for a country or a population to have legitimacy on a land. It's either you are the native original people or you are the current power slash force. Uh, so, you know, the argument in, a, in a, let's say, China, it could be said, oh, well, Tibet is the original population of that region, um, but the current force is China. And so their argument is we are the ones that are ruling now, they are the past. And the other argument is we are the original people. I personally uh, tend to agree with the original indigenous uh, claim. However, the reality is that Israel has both. Israel is both the indigenous population of the land and the current population. Right. And I, I have to now ask you this because we're, we're two both, um, you know, believing people and, and, and religious people. And um, this, 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 this argument of indigeneity, which is a central part of how you, you know, make the case for Israel. Just thinking about this from a, a Torah perspective, um, it seems to me, and maybe perhaps you can correct me if you, if you see it differently, but from my perspective at least, um, it doesn't seem to, to me to be that the, that's the Torah's argument for why uh, the Jewish people have the rights to the land of Israel. After all, the Jewish people conquered the land, according to the Torah, from another from uh, the, the Canaanites and other peoples that were living there. Um, yes, I guess you could say, you know, Abraham, he, 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 he settled in the land, um, but uh, there was still this, this element of, of, of conquering. And it seems to me that the Torah's main um, argument, I mean, Rashi, one of the commentators, uh, says that the whole purpose of the book of Genesis is to teach us that God gave the land to the Jewish people. In other words, this is not an argument of indigeneity. It's an argument of God gave, you know, God gave you the land and you have because, you know, what God says goes, so to speak. And now my question is twofold. The question one is, do you agree with that assessment and that the Torah doesn't seem to place so much of an element on indigeneity? And number two, um, do you think that's a, I can't imagine you'd think it's, an, it's a helpful argument to bring up in a debate with someone to start talking about what the, what the Bible says. Um, so two pronged question. Yeah, so first of all, the Jewish population makes up uh, in the world in terms of percentage between 0.01 to 0.02 per percent. Um, and I would even say that half of that population, of that Jewish population, 15 million, don't believe in the Torah and Hashem. So to take a very, 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 very small percentage of this world and to use an argument that only this small percentage uh, agrees with or sees or, or, or finds you know, legitimate is something that's that's completely wrong. I don't think one has to prevent from the other. In terms of conquering the Canaanites, that was with Yoshua uh, uh, when he came out and took Amisrael back from uh, Egypt and into the land of Israel. Now, we had come from Israel before that. The way that we got to Egypt is by Jacob and his children and the civilization tribes that were living all amongst them because it wasn't only one family. It was you know, several people, uh, you know, a whole community, a whole whole tribe of people that they left into Egypt because of famine and they were stuck there due to physical and mental slavery. But we had come before from Israel. So our, our purpose was always to return back home. So it wasn't a conquest, it was a liberation of our land. Now, if we're using the Torah as a source, which we have been because now we're talking about, uh, you know, the Canaanites, we're talking about the Yoshua, we're talking about all these things. In the Torah, it says that the Canaanites were African invaders that had come into the land. So where, know, where does it say that? Where, where, where does it say that? Uh, I'd have to find the source exactly, but it describes them as uh, African invaders that had come into the land. And actually, uh, a lot of early uh, people pushing for uh, creating a slave trade, uh, people that were white in Europe pushing for this, the enslavement of black people were using this to reference that they were 
uh, inferior and that they should be, you know, liberated. And they were using this actual source that I'm referencing as like an excuse for the racism. Um, but they are listed as African invaders that had come into land in this source. And mm -hmm. if we use the same source, the Torah again, which I don't use unless someone brings up, uh, Abraham descends from Shem. Shem was the first man to have lived in the Levant, which was one of the, the sons of Noah. So, you know, we are the descendants of the first man to have lived in this land. We are also the first civilization uh, to have been established on this land and coming back to uh, Israel was liberating our land, not conquering our land. Uh, so that's in terms of, of the conquest and the Canaanites and being able to speak that. But in terms of God promising us this land, again, do I, do I believe in the Torah? 100%. Um, do I think it contradicts with history and with facts and being able to give an argument intellectually using uh you know facts that the world all agrees on no it doesn't contradict we can also be indigenous and we could also have a special relationship with this land and that's a whole other conversation you know what is the purpose of amisled what do we see as our purpose with this land because for me this land isn't just a piece of territory it isn't just a a, a piece of property that you can buy and sell or, or own and give away it's your soulmate yeah and we have a purpose with this land uh, the way I see it is the Jewish people are the drivers, uh, the land of Israel is the vehicle, the Torah is the GPS, and Mashiach is the final destination, meaning we have to be able to use this land for a purpose for us to be able to move forward and achieve this reality that we speak of within the mysticism of our culture, that we will fix the problems that exist in this world, uh, poverty, sickness, uh, you know, all sorts of issues, war, you know, and, and create the reality that is functional for all, a body that that is healthy. So let's say the world is one body, all the nations are different organs, and all the organs have to work together for the body to be healthy. And it's Israel's job in within, within the we see our culture to be able to help the body heal itself and work together. And that is the purpose of Israel. Uh, you know, there's a purpose to it. It's not just a piece of territory. So, and, that, and that's a whole other conversation that is, I think it's more appropriate for, uh, for Jews to understand what is their culture and what is our aspirations, what is our purpose. Uh, but when it comes to speaking about Israel, I don't think one contradicts the other. But if you do use the answer that God gave us this land to answer to people that don't believe that God gave us this land, of course. it doesn't really do. Of course, of course. It's more sort of, I guess, more of a, you know, an internal discussion just in terms of let's just clarify what do, what do we really believe in terms of um, our, the, our right to the land and the purpose behind behind it. I must say I uh, you know as a, as a religious Jew I often look at things through um, you know I don't just look at the world and politics and geopolitics through just a physical lens I also look look at it through a spiritual lens and one of the reasons I guess I really admire what you what you do in terms of work in Hasbara and why sometimes I feel a bit, um, uh, I guess, like maybe even demotivated, is a sense that like from a Jewish religious perspective, anti-Semitism seems to be something that's just, it's, it's, it's a very deeply subconscious kind of force with its sp almost spiritual force within the world. And there's, see, I, I'm of the, and I want you, I think, I feel like I need to be persuaded out of this the whole time. I'm often of the persuasion that this is just a, you know, a reality, you know, it's like, why would you try and debate with, um, to, to make, not to compare with anti-Zionists, but like, why would you try and debate with a Nazi? You know, they're, 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 what's going on is something very deep, something very, that doesn't, you know, contend with logic. Um, and so, you know, your determination to do what people call the Hishtad Lut, uh, of actually making the case, uh, I find to be um, really admirable. But for me, I'm much more just focused on like, you know, the spiritual roots of this and like do, do, do you get what I'm, what I'm saying and what, how, how would you how would you react to that yeah so whenever I engage someone that is anti-semitic whether they're coming from the extreme left to the extreme right you know neo-nazis all sorts of individuals first of all I don't know their positions before I engage with them that's something that a lot of people don't take into consideration when they see my videos and, and comment all these sort of things I didn't know what they were going to say until they said it uh, number two uh, there is always a spark within every individual. There is always an ability to do what we say in in yeah, do tshuva, right? The the ability to fix 
yourself and to you know refulfill yourself with positivity. So there's always a spark that can be created into light, and even if in that moment you didn't uh, you know create light in within that person's mind, you could have planted seeds that maybe along the way he or she eventually will change their mind in the future. So there is mm. always a benefit to having conversations. And then when I have the conversations, there's a lot of people listening around. Uh, there's usually a crowd that builds up around, and it's also videotaped. So that helps do two things. It helps one educate and empower others to be able to confront such uh, statements, just such positions, to be able to respond to it, to conceptualize it, to understand it ideologically, and it also exposes it for people that are not Jewish and don't so, don't know so much about uh, Jewish history, identity, aspiration, suffering, and so on. They're able to see things that they would probably hear at some point or have heard and be able to hear what are the arguments against it and why is that wrong. So there's definitely a benefit in being able to engage and, and stuff like that. In terms of why there's anti-Semitism, it's a very deep question and I think it has several answers. Uh, that's the Jewish way. You know, there's one question and there's many, many answers. And with time, there are other answers that are revealed uh, that reveal themselves. Um, you know, the, the simple answers are, you know, the Jews are, you know, usually sick, more successful in terms of a, a group that is so small disproportionately than other groups, uh, you know, in, in positions of power that we usually get to in, in, in economic wealth. And there are many reasons for that. It's not because we were born or there's some sort of secret order or that we're any uh, different than anyone else. It's a part of our culture. You know, the Jewish population is the only population that was in times where the world was illiterate, could not read and write, were literate because we had bar and bat mitzvahs. So today, you know, everyone knows how to read and write, but, you know, you go back 300, 400 years ago, that wasn't the case. And in a civilization where this entire population was literate, that opened many doors for them. Another thing, a part of Jewish culture is helping one another, uh, which a lot of rappers in the U.S. actually talk about that the African-American community need to learn from the Jewish people of how they're able to teach each other, empower each other, help them give each other connections in order for them to rise up in societies that they're not from, which is not something that most uh, people from the black community do. It's something that I hope that they're able to eventually achieve is helping one another rise up into positions of power or to become successful. Also, another thing that we have and maybe existent in other cultures is the Jewish mother and Jewish father uh, obsessing over their children and telling them, you know, you can have the world if you want. You can be whatever you want. You can be the doctor. You can be the lawyer. I have high expectations for you. I'm going to put you in all the best classes, give you the best opportunities. And this is not every single Jew. Of course, there are many Jews that are bad. There are many Jews that are not successful. And there are many Jews that weren't raised right. However, for the most part, we are and we were. So this plays a huge role into that, and the response to Jews being disproportionately more successful, if you look at terms of demographics, uh, there's a lot of jealousy that is created. Uh, there's a lot of anti-Semitism that is created also with the question of dual loyalty, right? Because uh, often it comes up, you know, are you uh, French or are you Jewish? You know, the, the Napoleon asked the famous question to the Jewish community, you know, are, are you Jews living in France or are you French people that are Jews? Uh, meaning that when we fight Germany and there are Jews in Germany, you would be willing to fight them. And the answer that we should have given was, no, we're not French. We are Jews living in France. And although we can be a part of the civilization and society that we live in, and of course, of course, respect the civilization and society that we live in, because that is a part of Jewish culture to respect other places uh, when you're a guest or whatever else and have equal rights, that doesn't mean this is where you come from. I can give you a little example of a, a little experiment that I did for, for my family to, to see the answer, because most of my family lives in France. And although they're very proud and very Jewish and connected to Israel, they still also see themselves as French. And I had a conversation with my grandmother, who was born in Algeria, moved to Morocco when she was young, and was kicked out of Ujda, like I said, in 1948 with my grandfather, uh, fled to France, uh, and created her life in France. My mother was born in France, and so on. And I asked her, you know, Grandma, like, why do you say that you're French? She's like, I'm French. France gave me everything that, uh, that I have. It allowed me to, you know, create wealth and allowed me to give good education to my children. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's fine that you appreciate France, but why do you why do you identify as part of the French nation, as the French people? As like, this is your history and your future. It's not. It's just your experience. She's like, no, no, I'm, I'm French. I'm Jewish, but I'm also French. I'm like, okay, Grandma, let me actually show you how when you say that you're French, it, it gives off a different message than you're intending, and it actually sparks a lot of anti-Semitism. She's like, what do you mean by that? I was like, okay, if you have to go to the market and you need to buy an avocado and you see an avocado made in Israel and an avocado made in France, which one are you going to buy? She's like, the one made in Israel. I was like, okay, 
if uh, there's a war, let's say France is fighting in a war and Israel's fighting in a war, and it's not even a war against France versus Israel, it's just there are two different wars being, being done simultaneously. And your son has to be drafted, but he has the choice to go and draft and fight for Israel. Which one would you tell your son to go? She's like, fight for Israel. Okay. And grandma, if there's a family, let's say in Argentina, a Jewish family that needs uh, tzedakah, that needs some charity, that needs help. And there's a family in Paris that is not Jewish, but a family in Paris that needs help. And you only have $100. Of course, you, Grandma, I know that you would give to both because you want to just help people. But let's say in this theoretical experiment, you only had the opportunity to give to one family. Which family would you give to? And she said the Jewish family in Argentina, which is understandable. We're family, right? You know, that like what you would help your son or your daughter before you would help a stranger. It's normal. It's nothing. That doesn't mean you don't. You won't harm onto a stranger. You wouldn't help the stranger if you have the opportunity to do so. And I was like, you see, Grandma, that when you, you, you're communicating in, in theory that you're French, but in practice you're not. And when people that are really French hear that you say that you're French, but see that you're acting like you're not French, then they have the question of dual loyalty. Whereas if we were honest from the get-go and we were saying, no, we live in America, we live in England, we live in France, we can live in Morocco and in Russia and in Africa and in China and all these other places, but we are going to communicate honestly with you. This is not our history. This is not our future. This is not our land. And this is not our nation. We are from Israel. We belong in Israel. That is our nation. That is our history. That is our culture. That is our aspiration. And we choose to willingly live here. And we respect the society and the culture. And we will seek to help increase it and benefit the society that we live in. We pay our taxes. We stand at the line. We don't break the laws. And we actually help to push those societies forward. But we're honest with you. We're from there. I think that would actually decrease a lot of anti-Semitism because there'd be no confusion. Well, the same way you can have a, someone, let's say, from Bolivia coming to the U.S. on a foreign exchange uh, student visa. And no one is seeing this Bolivian as an invader or as a traitor because they're very honest that they are Bolivian and yeah. they're respectfully coming and legally coming and, and doing school in, in the U.S. or in other places. And there's no confusion about who they yeah. are. Yeah. So just because you're an other doesn't mean that people will reject you. It's when you when you are another and you pretend not to be that actually causes a lot of confusion and rejection. So that is another big issue that I think has historically caused anti-Semitism. But I think the issue that you are touching on mostly was this greater metaphysical concept of there's always anti-Semitism in this world, uh, which I agree with you. Um, for me, the way I see it is there's a plan A where you're going on the right path. You know who you are as a part of Amisal. You know what your purpose is. And when you start to assimilate, forget your identity, forget your purpose, have internal fighting, we fight between the tribes, that's when we get slapped with the destruction of Israel or with anti-Semitism. And we see it historically within the pogroms, the Spanish Inquisition, the Holocaust, the Black Plagues, and so on. The moment in history when that happens is when the Jews were incredibly assimilated and totally weak in terms of like who they are and standing up for themselves and unable to understand what their purpose is. And anti-Semitism sort of slaps us back into position, into the derech, into the path of knowing who we are and doing what our purpose is in this world. And that's what I think we need to be able to transcend anti-Semitism is to find our purpose and to do it. And, you know, if our purpose is to spread light into this world, you know, why is there so much rejection towards uh, the Jewish people? You know, this is more my own culture connecting to my identity and my history and my, and my religious connection and, and spiritual connection. But if our purpose to sort of, in a way, be a, an immune system for the world, right? Not the brain, not the heart, you know, those are all vital organs, but the immune system is also something important. And our goal is to spread light and to fix things where there is darkness and to help people. If we're not doing that, then the immune system is not functioning in the body and it's normal for the organs to reject that organ that is not working or the immune system that is not working. Yeah. And that, I think, is why there's always anti-Semitism because uh, in, or subconsciously, there is a sort of feeling that the Jews have this potential and ability to actually help this world, but they're not doing it. And so we're going to blame them for the suffering that this world goes through, that although they're not the cause of that suffering, the reason they see us as the cause of that suffering is we have the ability to, to change it and to help it, and we're right. not doing that job. Exactly. And that's what I think is the... Totally agree. And it's like in, it's in, in the prayer service in Davening for... Uh... I think it's in Musaf during, uh, you know, festivals or, or the new month. Um, we talk about the fact that it says uh, because of uh, 
uh, our waywardness and our sins and our losing, losing focus on who we're, what we're all about, that's why we were exiled from the land. The, so as I say, that's why I feel like people who just are looking at anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism with dismay without at least, there's nothing wrong with fighting it, but without recognizing that there's a bigger, you know, there's bigger undercurrents happening here and there's bigger things that need to be done in order to rectify it, which is exactly as you say, being more real about who we are. It's ironic because it doesn't make sense. It's like, we, we think they're hating us for being Jewish, so surely the answer should be, be less Jewish, perhaps. You know, that was, uh, wasn't that Herzl's first plan? He said, let's just convert them all to Christianity. But the truth is, you're absolutely right. It seems counterintuitive, but actually when we embrace uh, who we are as Jews, um, then I think you're right, and there will be less anti-Semitism. I, I totally agree. Um, Finally, I want to talk about, just before we wrap up, I want to talk about the relationship, because you have some things uh, really interesting to say about America's relationship with Israel. Um, a lot of people within the pro-Israel camp, they, they are, you know, almost obsessed with, with Israel, America having a relationship and, you know, praising America. We should be very grateful for the aid that we, we get from America. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, but the question is, um, you know, is, is it a good thing for Israel to be reliant? And you, you've actually said you don't, you, you reject it. So my question is going to be twofold. Question one is, do you think that Israel should be, you know, what, can you explain your position on Israel's reliance on America and what you think about Israel's relationship with America? And number two, are there other alliances which you would want to see and maybe encourage, you know, maybe kind of new powers that are arising? Do you think Israel needs to invest more in that? Can you? Yeah, so first of all, I'm completely against the foreign aid that the uh, U.S. gives to Israel. Um, and the reason is, is it's not money given to Israel. It's credit that Israel has to spend um, in the U.S. military complex, industrial complex that it has. And it makes us completely dependent and it comes with many strings attached, meaning we can't buy weapons or military technology from other countries without the approval of the U.S. We can't sell military weapons or technology to other countries without the approval of the U.S. The vast majority of our tanks, planes, bullets, magazines, guns, uh, boots, everything is made in the U.S., which forces us to be completely dependent on a sector that is so vital to our survival, which is security. Um, you know, I was one of the first drafts in the IDF, I served in the paratroopers, that had to wear U.S. boots. Previously, we had, they had Krill, which was an Israeli company uh, of Israeli boots, and that went out of business because we were forced to expand the foreign aid, and now Israel had to find other places to spend that money, which caused a lot of companies to go out of business in Israel. Wow. And there's an argument that people make, well, uh, there's so much money that they're giving us, uh, it's actually helping our economy because we can use other money elsewhere. Well, the answer to that is no, because the amount of economy and, and, and money that would, that would grow from having our own weapons and uh, you know military finance and funded and manufactured within Israel and our ability to, to, to sell you know technology to whoever we want to would you know exponentially be way more than the amount we're making from this foreign aid. So this foreign aid is not aid to Israel, it's a making Israel dependent, which allows the US to push foreign policies onto Israel. And my goal is for Israel to be completely dependent on itself and no one else. Uh, especially not the United States. So I'm not anti-U.S. I'm anti the way the current relationship stands. I'm anti the U.S. foreign aid to Israel because it's uh, structured in a way that makes Israel dependent and is not beneficial for Israel in the long term. Uh, so I'm against uh, that in terms of relationship with other countries. I think Israel should have a relationship with all countries and not have any limitation. Again, the world that I, that I believe in, that uh, Jews that are connected to uh, Judaism and the mysticism behind Judaism believe that one day all the nations must work together and be able to live together. So, you know, in terms of Israel having relations with other countries, I think we should have relations with all countries and not have any limiting uh, things. And lastly, um, still staying on America, and I guess really just the diaspora generally, um, there's a lot of talk about progressive Jews uh, in particular becoming alienated with Israel. Um, also, especially around what's going on with the annexation um, that's due to happen next month. Um, are you concerned about this kind of alienation that's happening? I mean, this alienation is not something new, and I don't think it's caused because of the talks about annexation. Um, I think it's caused because a lot of you know Jews that are predominantly to the left, which are usually more humanistic than nationalistic, 
Um, you know, there, there's talks of cooked, you know, a great Kabbalist uh, talks about that there are three sectors or parts of being Jewish, and somehow some most Jews have a combination of two and lack the third one, but some people have all three, which is the spiritual connection, the national connection, and the humanist connection, meaning a connection to the uh, world and the people around you and rights and humanity and all this stuff, a connection to spirituality, to Hashem, to to that and the connection to your people and your right to self-determination and the people that are usually to the left uh, usually have you know a mix of you know maybe spirituality maybe not or are completely only humanistic and no nationalistic but the, the, the balance should be to have an equal amount in all three for all three of those things to be important and even within Israeli society we see the religious and the nationalistic being strong but sometimes often lacking the humanistic uh, so I think a lot of American Jews that are more to the left have grown up in a civilization, in a society, in a community that has not taught them what it means to be Jewish. They're still taught that Judaism is just this belief system that you choose to believe in it or not, and that makes you Jewish or not, which we both know is not true. It's a nation, it's a people, it's a family. And yes, our religious beliefs is a fundamental part of, of who we are but even if you don't believe in the Torah you're still a Jew whereas in any religion if you don't believe in that religion you're not a part of that religion because that's the very definition of a religion to believe in something so if you don't believe in something that's not a religion that's a population it's a civilization um, so because they are very disconnected from their identity what it means to be a Jew uh, to Israel and influenced so deeply by the left which fights for a lot of great things like equality for rights of people of color and of women and so on um, it's associated today with also being anti-israel that they're forced to take those positions and don't know any better um, there are three ways in my opinion that a jew can respond to anti-semitism and this is not talking about the misinformation that a lot of jews have that they have their conclusion based on not knowing who they are not knowing the truth but let's say a jew does know the truth there are still those jews that go and become anti-israel uh, that come from Zionist families, that come from Israel, that were in the IDF. And so my take on, on the way we need to look at this is the same way we need to look at how a woman deals with uh, uh, an abusive husband in domestic violence, right? Let's say there's a woman being beat by her husband, which is a horrible situation. Um, there are three ways in which that woman can react. She can stand up, fight, and leave, remove herself from that situation, you know, end that situation. That I think is what me and you are doing, uh, standing up, seeing anti-Semitism, fighting it, spreading light, you know, being proactive about changing this world and doing something better. Then there are women that ignore this, the problem, which are the majority of women that are in that situation. Oh, it's not that bad. They make excuses for it. Oh, no, it was, you know, it was just drunk or, oh, no, he didn't really mean it. Or, oh, he just lost his temper making excuses for it, which is actually what most Jews do historically and also currently today in the diaspora, make excuses for anti-Semitism, pretend it's not really a problem, oh, it's just this one time, oh, it's not really that big of an issue, oh, let's not really talk about it, let's, you know, you know, if we make noise, it'll just get worse for us. And then there's the third way to react, which I think is the worst, is oftentimes women blame themselves Self -blame, yeah. for that domestic abuse, yeah. uh, in which they say, no, it was my fault, I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have spoke back, I shouldn't have, you know, I should have cleaned this, I should, which is just a horrible position to be in. Yeah. And anyone that knows a woman or even a man in, in this situation should help them uh, get out of there because they're traumatized and that's the conclusion due to their trauma. And that's the same thing that happens to many Jews. Uh, because we've been traumatized for generations after persecution and extermination and anti-Semitism that is even, you know, rising today, the conclusion of many Jews, not most, but many, uh, from the far left and even religious Jews like Natoli Kauta, is to blame it on you. We deserve to suffer. It's our fault that we suffer. Or we're going to side with our oppressors. We're going to side with those that seek to destroy us because that's how we survive. We must be under the thumb uh, of our oppressors. And that is not something that I call a self-hating Jew, like many people like to use. It's more uh, the, the trauma that has been imposed and passed down. A traumatized Jew. Yeah. Jews that are, as we say, woke and strong and are able to fight back and stand up to things that are wrong. It's our responsibility to help them, not to shame them. Well, that's a very, very um, sobering analysis of... Uh different approaches to anti-Semitism throughout the Jewish world, um, and I think a very, very poignant one. Um, so anyway, Rudy, full of, as predicted, you're full of uh, uh, lots of really just uh, insightful arguments, perspectives, and I know our viewers are going to love this content. 
Uh, it's always a great, great uh, pleasure to talk with you. And we look forward to making, not just doing more interviews, but also just making more uh, creative content with you uh, on JTV. So thank you again for your time and for all that you do. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to so much more and keep spurring light into this world. To stay up to date with JTV content, click subscribe here if you're on YouTube and hit the alarm bell. And if you're on Facebook, hit the like button and under following, click